Okay, you ready, AP? Ready when you are. Let's lay this baby down. Lofty, you on the guitar, mate. You right, Scope? Yep, standing by. Bertie, you on the bass? Yep, ready to go. All right, here we go then. One, two, three, four. Just two good old boys. Two good old boys. Never meeting no harm. Before we never saw the hand, no hair since the day they was born. Straighten the curves. Straighten the curves. Welcome to all, welcome back to the Mojo Radio Show. If you are a regular on the bus, you know the shtick. If you're new, well, welcome. Thank you for downloading our little show just to bring you up to speed. The Mojo Radio Show is all about finding interesting people from all walks of life, people who have their mojo working in or out of work. We find the good stuff, we extract it, we supply it to you so we can apply it to our own world or, in fact, help a, help the world of a friend who needs to get their own mojo kickstarted. If you know someone who's kind of out of sorts and they are feeling a bit flat, lost their mojo, just send them a link to the show, Intro Us. We will speak highly of you and hopefully they'll speak highly of us. Uh, and speaking of out of sorts, our desire here in the show is to bring you a wide range of topics and guests so we don't stick to the one lane. And anyone who knows our show well knows that we like to use the whole highway. Here in the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show, we like to change lanes often. And this week's special guest is Nick Enfield. It's, he's actually, this is a very interesting topic. Nick is the author of a new book called How We Talk, and in this show he explains exactly the inner workings of our conversations. He's a professor of linguistics at the Uni of Sydney and a director of the Sydney Social Science and Humanities Advanced Research Centre. Try that out for a few dosekis, mate. <laughs> Did you practice that one before we went on air? So Nick's research, all the work he's done, is on language and culture, cognition, social life, and all this stuff, how it works in the long term. And he's, the really cool thing about Nick is not only is his whole body a brain, but he's also worked in heaps of different countries of the world to bring all this research together so that we, us, 
you, as in the listeners, us here in the studio, we can make sense of our conversation and ensure we're doing a good job of it. So I don't think we've had a guest specifically speaking on speech and speaking, have we? Um, Aha. Exactly, my friend. (laughs) That is where we're headed. Nick. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thanks very much for having me. To put everybody in the picture, Nick, when somebody walks up to you and asks you what you do, how do you like to reply? Wow, when they ask me what I do, how I like to reply, I guess I'd have to say that um, I'm a student of language and, uh, you know, often they'll say, well, what language? And I'll say... No, actually, I'm a linguist, which means that um, we study the human capacity for language. So what we do is not to look at any particular language, but to look at the the hundreds and, in fact, thousands of languages that are spoken in the world and try to get to the bottom of uh, what they all have in common and the ways in which they differ. So that's what I like to say when I explain to people what what a linguist is and what a linguist does. If that's the case as a linguist and you're doing this study, what have you, what changes have you seen with language in the last couple of years? And where I'm going with this is that obviously how we communicate has changed pretty dramatically with the digital age. How, how has that impacted our actual language of things you're seeing as a linguist? The digital age, as you put it, is, you know, it's characterised by a kind of hyper acceleration of information flow. And, you know, I think one of the important ways in which it's played a role in changing language is that it, 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 is that it accelerates the number of people that we can communicate with in one moment. Uh, it accelerates the sort of number of cycles that you can have of uh, a new bit of language getting exposed to people. And these are the sort of basic ingredients of language change. If you go back in history, you know, language change could could happen fairly quickly in a, in a small population. But once a population of uh, speakers of a language gets quite big, then, you know, a change has to spread through the population, you know, from mouth to mouth, you know, as, as it were. Um, but then once you introduce technology, you can, you can speed that up. So, you know, when, as soon as you had things like print coming in, way back when, and then, you know, radio coming in and television coming in, uh, all of those were sort of revolutions in terms of the reach um, of any given sort of bit of language as long as it got into that system of broadcasting. So, you know, a, a new phrase or a new bit of accent or some sort of new bit of language could spread much faster as soon as these technologies were introduced. Um and whatever the changes happen to be, they, they, they would get that much greater reach. So what we're seeing now with the kind of information revolution of the internet and so forth is really, um, you know, it's clearly a, a radical step up. But in a way, it's just another step in a long history of sort of radical innovations in terms of um, how language gets kind of spread across populations. You just mentioned communication mouth to mouth. And I'm curious, has social media and the way we are now communicating through screens, has that diminished our ability to speak face to face? Like, is it starting to have an effect on how we communicate to each other when we are face to face? Well, I 
I wouldn't think so. I mean, you know, communicating face-to-face is something that even with a lot of social media, we do it all the time anyway, you know. We've still got to go down and, and, and get a cup of coffee. We've still got to talk to our family members, you know. Uh, there's a lot of time spent in the day when, you know, either at work or in everyday life, we're still communicating uh, face-to-face. And, and that's a very rich kind of setting for communication and language is supported in those contexts by our hand gestures and our facial expressions and the things that, you know, that we, we point at and we show people in our environment. So, you know, I think that my sense is that social media is not uh, affecting kind of our capacity for expression. And if, if anything, it's kind of enhancing it. If the question is about, you know, our ability to use language um, or the ways in which we use language, I think that, you know, it's not really taken away from what we do, but... Um, if anything, it's it's adding to the ways in which we can communicate. So w- we've seen these um, conversations about you know something simple like like using text messages to communicate, and some people will kind of decry the the, the abbreviations that come in and, and and these kinds of things. But you know, linguists know that that's nothing to be decried. That's something really to be celebrated because it shows people's innovation, their creativity with language. And, um, you know, it doesn't really lead to people uh, becoming less able to communicate. If anything, it, it, it gives them extra resources. I saw you wrote that it takes the brain about half a second to retrieve the words to say something, which means that in conversation, one person is gearing up to speak before the other person has actually finished. So by listening to the tone the grammar and the content of what someone is saying, we can predict when they're going to be done. In this day and age with the rapid means of communication we have, do you think that we are predicting too much and actually not listening to the conversation itself? Well, that's, you know, it's an interesting question. The the things that you were just saying about the sort of speed of uh, conversation, those observations um, are derived from the study of, of language uh, in real time, the, the way in which we use it when we're talking to other people and when we're, you know, doing experiments um, where we get people to speak as quickly as, as we can. And, and those people are, you know, when we're talking, just like you and I are talking right now, um, it is, it's immediate. It's absolutely immediate. There's no kind of possibility of me just going silent for a while and thinking for a while without giving you an indication of, of, you know, what I'm doing. Um, because we're sort of really joined in this activity of talking and, and the immediacy is, is, you know, you really can't get any more immediate than this. As soon as you go into, uh, some other form of communication, like using text messages or, you know, or, or emails or, or other forms of sort of media, um, you can, it can be fairly immediate, but it's still less immediate than face-to-face communication. Um, so whether you're talking to someone face-to-face or, or to having a sort of a quick exchange of text or, you know, chats or the, uh, chat messages and things like that, sure, you're always going to be applying some form of prediction. Um, 
and you're going to be acting on that form of prediction. I mean, we, we've all had this problem with sort of text messaging where, you know, you've sent your your follow-up to what someone just said, but meanwhile they're saying a different thing and you suddenly got two conversations going on. Um, that kind of prediction that happens when you get misfiring in text messaging, you know, that's what that shows is that the text message, the text uh, context is actually less immediate and and. It, we're less able to be responsive in in that context, um, and our and our capacity for prediction and our our sort of habits of predicting others, they're very strong and powerful already. You know, they're, they're, everybody applies those in everyday conversation, and they're not going to go away because, um, you know, that's how we can be so efficient in communication. We we we're engaged with another person in a in a conversation. We've got. A sense of where they're going. We've got a sense of you know what's the topic of conversation, and um, you know we're, we're really quite skilled at sort of predicting. It, it doesn't mean it doesn't misfire. We do misfire in all sorts of ways, but in general, um, you know we do pretty well. And um, and I think that you know over prediction uh, is not really something that there's a great risk with. Um, and the reason I say that is because particularly in face-to-face interaction. You've got the possibility if you do sort of misfire, if you do uh, wrongly predict what a person was going to say, you come in too early, too late, or you come in with the wrong thing. We have the ability to uh, what I call repair, uh, you know, the, the the trajectory of the conversation. We're able to back up in the moment and rephrase, or we're able to, you know, stop uh, and let the other person go and so forth. We, we have a bunch of mechanisms for that. And that's, that's something, you know, also that I've, that I've been writing about. See, I, I find this area very interesting, Nick. We had a guy on the line, oh gee, it must be four months ago now, uh, Taylor Pearson, who was talking about the future of the workplace. And I fired a question at him and there was complete air silence. And the silence went on for quite a while. And Robbo went, are you still there? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I'm just thinking. And it was the first time there was this really awkward pause and you don't know whether you've lost the person, but you don't know whether you need to give them the airtime. And where I'm going with this is Ben Kingsley won the Academy Award for Gandhi. And in an interview on Inside the Actor's Studio with James Lipton, he said, stillness and silence are my currency. And you've said that a full second is about the limit of our tolerance for silence. And I find it really interesting that the great interviewers or the people who seemingly are great at conversation will allow the other person to finish and leave that pause to acknowledge the fact that I want to hear everything you've got to say and I want to think about what you've said before I reply as opposed to just jumping in and replying. Yet if you leave it too long... There's an awkward pause and I'm, I'm very curious as a linguistic sense and a conversation sense is where, where is that happy medium where you can have a great conversation, give respect, but not make it awkward? Yeah, well, there's a lot um, to talk about in there. I guess that one thing is um, there's a big difference between just having a face-to-face conversation with someone just two of you um, and doing an interview or having a, you know, that type of a question answer session, um, you know, as, as we're having right now, um, or, or in a kind of an onstage interview, like with the actor studio, the, the, the difference is that, you know, in the interview situation, there's an audience 
um, who is there and they're mostly there to listen to one of the people, probably not both of them. And, you know, and a, and a, and a good interviewer is going to get uh, the interviewee to, to talk and they're going to direct that talk in various ways. But essentially, you know, as far as I understand, I've spoken to plenty of journalists in the interviews I've done and they've often told me that, um, that, that they get instructed uh, not to start uh, responding to the interviewee when they feel that it's natural to do so, but to sort of hold off and wait. And th the reason why that works is because exactly because we can't tolerate that silence. So if I come to the end of my phrase um, and I'm sort of thinking, okay, well, now you can talk. And if you go silent as the interviewer, it's a good trick because it, it means that I'm going to be the one who breaks first, right? I, I'm going to be the one who <clears throat> can no longer sort of put up with that silence and I'll keep talking. And that's the point of the interview is to get the interviewee to kind of keep talking. So that is a skill and it's, and it's a skill, that skill of holding off when you feel that you should probably be talking now is, is something that needs to be taught, needs to be learned. Um, and that's why I think you know that's how that's exactly how people uh, how people talk about it that that it's a skill that you need to use when you're you know when you're trying to get more of a performance out of someone or trying to get a person to continue you just go silent and they they'll kind of have to have to keep going when it comes to just face to face conversation where you don't have an audience and you're not sort of trying to extract more speech out of a person you know there, there are different issues at play and and. You know, I, I, I use the word calibration here. The, the the thing about the way that we talk is that we are very sensitive to the timing um, in, in conversation in the ways that we've just been describing. So if somebody tends to come in too quickly, you weren't quite finished and now they're gearing up, they're actually speaking before you wanted to finish. Well, you know, you interpret that as kind of interrupting you or... Or if, the, if it goes the other way, if they wait too long and you keep going, then the other person will feel they're getting kind of excluded. And the the, the problems of conversation of that nature come when the two people who are interacting have a different kind of uh, time setting, if you like. You know, imagine they have a kind of a calibration, a, a timing setting for their conversational rhythm. Um, if one person's setting is a little bit different from the others, then you're going to get these... Uh, subtle but still significant kind of sense of discomfort in in the interaction. It's really interesting because you can you can be having a conversation with somebody and you just get on and there is a rhythm, isn't there? And there are other people where you have to work so hard to try and get a conversation going, and in the end you just don't enjoy it because there was no rhythm. I, I think that's such an interesting point. Yeah, it's true, and you know what's amazing about it is that. We have this very strong sense uh, of, you know, how significant that difference is that, you know, with some people, uh, the rhythm is there. We just feel completely natural. With others, we have to work so hard. But if you record those conversations and you you measure kind of the difference, we, you find that people become incredibly sensitive to very small um, timing differences. So, you know, we, found, we find in the research that, that I talk about a lot in, in the book I recently recently published on this stuff, um, you, uh, you you know you find that if you just delay your response by a couple of hundred milliseconds, right? So that's just a couple of tenths of a second. People get this sense that oh, you know, they they they, they put in this long silence before they respond. This is often a um, a source of kind of 
cross-cultural misunderstandings and so forth. And, you know, when we got curious about this and we went and actually measured uh, the timing differences, we found that actually, you know, across across different cultures where people have written about these incredible long silences and so on, you've got differences in average response time to, to say, a question in conversation of, of just, um, you know, a quarter of a second at the most. It's it's the reason I I wanted to speak to you, Nick, as I said during the intro, as I saw the article that you you were interviewed actually by a lady, and it was all about the word um. And you've in this so far, you've used the word or the the sound um and ah a few times, and it's it's quite. I find it quite curious that a linguist would actually use those words because I thought. And it's just a perception. I thought a linguist would be very precise, very strict with how they use words. Yet, the reason I wanted to talk to you, and it was a, it was a personal desire of mine, is that you call them traffic signals or big traffic signals that help manage the conversation. And in your mind, um and are and those sorts of words are actually valuable. Yet, if you do presentation skills as a grown-up, you would get critiqued to say you need to take that out of your presentation. Or if you're at school, I suspect in most schools, if you did it too often, you would get corrected. Yet your view is it's a valuable part of the conversation. How do you see that? Explain that for me. Well, you know, there's a couple of dimensions to it. One is that, you know, linguists, there's a distinction in linguistics between what we call a descriptive view of language and a prescriptive view of language. And the prescriptive view is to prescribe how people should talk. And often people think that that's the linguist's job, you know, and that so we use the correct words and we don't use, you know, uh, the incorrect ones. The, the, the sort of lesson of linguistics when you get up into the, you know, into the levels of doing it at, at, at university and uh, working as a, as a researcher in linguistics, we're really interested not in prescribing and telling people how to talk, but discovering how people actually do talk. Uh, and so we don't sort of judge, if you like, um, how it is that people talk. We just want to understand it. So, that, you know, that, that tells you that when it comes to something like arm, you know, I'm not going to walk around saying, no, you shouldn't say um. And the reason is that if, if you record pe- how people talk, you find that people say um one out of every 60 words that they say, um or ah, right? Uh, so people have done counts on this and, you know, on the basis of, of a lot of um, recordings. And we find that people use it a lot. And the question is, well, why are they doing that? Well, the reason why they're doing that is particularly in face-to-face conversation is that they're letting the other person know about something that is going on inside their head and would otherwise be inaccessible. So you're in a situation in a conversation where you've got, um, you know, a fast exchange of speaking. No, we don't plan ahead who's going to talk and uh, at what point and how long they're going to talk for and when we're going to switch and so on. So you need to get a sense of where I'm going before you know, okay, when, when is it going to be your turn to talk and so forth. So we, we refer to words like harmonized traffic signals for, for precisely this reason. They come out as a public signal to you that says, okay, I'm having a little uh, trouble here. I'm trying to find the word. I'm trying to formulate what I want to say next. So I'm just letting you know this, you know, with this little noise 
uh, and so that you know, okay, he hasn't gone silent. Um, it's not that he didn't hear what I said or whatever, you know, going back to the, the, the interview scenario you described just before. Um, it, it gives you this kind of message and you know to sort of hold off uh, at, that, at that moment. So the, the, the word um, and the word are these little devices that are designed or they emerge out of face-to-face conversation where you don't have that kind of planned, um, you know, planning about who's exactly going to talk and when. The thing about talking on stage and giving lectures and public talks that you that you raised sort of brings another dimension into it and you know that's the context in which people will say get rid of your ums and ahs and that's a different kind of scenario if you think about it right so if i give a a public talk i i stand up at the podium and there's no sort of question about well who's going to talk when right that's a context in which everyone knows that you know for the next 20 minutes you know this guy is going to be talking and the people in the audience aren't just going to sort of pipe up right until until the kind of Q&A time so that's a a time when actually you do have much more control as a speaker over what it is that you want to say how you want to say it when you want to say it so when people say cut out um and ah I think the point here is that um and ah are really symptoms of the problem so it's no it's no point sort of saying oh you know just cut out those symptoms what they really want uh, public speakers to do is to know what they want to say in advance, to have practiced it, to to have a good sense of the timing of how they want to say it. And if you get all of those things right, and if you're well rehearsed and you you know you, you you're well versed in the subject that you're talking about, then naturally these ums and ahs are not not going to come out nearly so often, and you're going to have a better chance of actually uh, sort of suppressing them. I think that's linguistic gold, Robert. Linguistic gold. Mm. I think it's great. I think it's because I think we tend to have a lot of these things, Nick, as absolutes that we read or hear it or we're taught it and it's an absolute. But what you're saying to me is, and I'm reflecting back to how we might use this with children, how we might use this in a corporate environment, social environment, is it's a depends situation, which leads me on to something that you wrote about in the book, that people can use um as a way to claim more conversational space for themselves. So that language isn't right or wrong. It's a depends on the context situation, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a, you know, when we call it a traffic signal, you can also think of it as a kind of a tool. Uh, and a tool can be used, you know, in a in a in a cooperative way, or it can be exploited in a certain kind of way. And the idea that people use this uh, tool, you know, for for kind of claiming space in the conversation is something that's, you know, that makes sense in the context of everyday conversation when we don't have a sort of pre-planned, uh, you know, a plan in advance of who's going to who's going to speak and when. So they found something I talk about in the book. Um, they found that uh, if you look at the difference between men and women using um and ah, in general, men will use them a little bit more. Uh, and so you know, there's 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 no real consensus on why that is. But one hypothesis is you know exactly this that it's not because it might be just because men are more often having trouble formulating what it is that they want to say, um, but it might also be because they're actually using or sort of over-exploiting this signal that says, okay, 
I'm going to block out a little bit more of the uh, floor time in this conversation. So don't you jump in yet because I am I just want to be the one who's talking next. Is conversation suffering because let's take, let's take text and emails out of the picture for a second. Yeah. In a face-to-face scenario, either across a coffee, in a waiting room somewhere, conversation with your loved one at the dinner table, is conversation suffering because we don't look at each other and instead we're staring at the screens, but we're using um, aha, uh-huh, aha uh-huh, as a way to make out we're listening when we're actually not. So is that another situation where these words could be a negative where we, we're trying to make out we're engaged in the conversation, but we know we can't do two things at once, particularly we've got to concentrate on what's being said. Is that something else which is breaking down our ability to have great conversation? Well, I think it could be. Um, I don't think it's really a new scenario, though. So, I mean, if you just, if I'm looking at my phone and I'm saying, uh-huh, mm-hmm, in a way, you know, this is the same as you can just go back decades uh, and you're having a telephone conversation with someone, the classic scenario being, you know, that person is going on and on and on and you're sitting reading the newspaper that can't see that you're doing that, but you're quite able to say, uh-huh, mm-hmm, uh-huh, going on and on and on. And you can somehow detect in your, you know, in the periphery, what is the right moment for you to say, uh-huh, mm-hmm, to prompt the person to keep going, but actually you're not, you're not kind of listening to them at all. Uh, that's obviously poor, a poor situation in terms of communication, right? I mean, if I'm not listening to you, if I'm not paying attention, you know, it defeats the whole purpose of having the conversation. And yet I'm still able to somehow uh, convey the impression that I am that I am listening and paying attention to you, which is kind of remarkable if you if you think about it. Uh, but in general, you know, I think that um, having these constant distractions around you, you know, obviously it puts pressure on the capacity to just pay attention to others, and that's really what it boils down to. I mean, there's there's an there's a sort of an economy of attention. Uh, and we're we're sort of in the you know we're in a great sort of war on on our attention at the moment, particularly with all of the the media and so forth. And so, you know, if you really want to have a proper conversation, then yeah, you've got to give the other person your your full attention. And that's why I think it's crucial to uh, you know have no phone time and to you know do all those kinds of practices where we're acknowledging that no, you actually can't pay attention to two things at once. If you look at the way that people interact with each other, which is something I've done a lot with my colleagues in our in our research on language, we use video recording for all the work that we do. I mean, not all. Some of the stuff is, is phone conversations, but a lot of what we do is on video. And when you study video recordings of people interacting with each other when they're you know actually engrossed in the interaction and they're they're paying attention. You know, there really are very many ways in which they show that they're paying attention. They will, you know, orient their bodies towards each other. They won't be half turned away. They'll be looking at each other uh, constantly. They'll be, um, you know, showing each other their kinds of facial expressions and, and, and all sorts of ways in which they will demonstrate, you know, that there is this complete sort of commitment to the moment of having the interaction. And that's, that's something that I emphasize in the book is that conversation is a – it's not just you saying something and then I say something. It's a it's what we call a joint activity. It's a it's a kind of activity where we've committed 
the bit of time that we currently have to doing this thing together, you know, just in the same way that we might go for a walk together or, or dance together or, you know, watch a movie together. We don't cut out halfway through. We, we, we do our part and we see it through um, to the end. So, you know, I guess that in answer to your question, what we really want to do is to draw people's attention to that fact and to get people to, to sort of celebrate that fact and say, okay, we're talking now, so let's do the things that people do when they're talking, which is give each other our full attention. And I, I want to uh, dig into that just for a second because there was some research that you either did or had access to where you had a group who were listening intently to someone answering a particular question or telling a story. Then you had a group who were doing the same thing, yet they were intentionally distracted by having a task that you'd given them. And you talked about the fact that the storyteller, if they know that the person is distracted, the storyteller then tends to circle back and repeat themselves. Can you talk through that piece of research and what you found? Sure. Well, this is actually um, not work by us. It's by Jan Bavilis and her colleagues um, in Canada. And, and they are psychologists and they noticed that language has this property that I was just describing where, you know, it's not just a person producing some words, but it's actually two people who are kind of hooked up to each other in a certain kind of way. And this is something that I refer to in the book as as a conversation machine, that you sort of both sit in this vehicle in a sense and you each kind of play your part even when one person is talking. So what they did is they brought people into their uh, lab, you know, it's a psychology lab where, you, you know, you sit people down across from each other at the table and um, they just said, okay, well, we're just going to sort of, you know, film you and record you and we'll have one of you uh, talk about a near-miss experience, you know, like a, a near-death experience, uh, accident you had or something like this. And people, most people have a story to tell like that. And, uh, they, they, you know, they noticed that when you study these kinds of stories in conversation, people are pretty – it's a pretty clear sort of uh, structure that it has. So I'll start out by saying, you know, oh, yeah, this – this, you know, I almost died, um, uh, you know, when we were cutting down trees in the, in the forest this time. And so – you know, you as a listener, you get a clue from the start about, you know, well, what's the story going to be about and how can I recognize when we're at the end of it? But then, of course, once I start the story, I've got to give the background. And what's going to happen is that you will do your job as a listener and you'll be saying, occasionally be saying, uh-huh, mm-hmm, demonstrating that you're following, that you're paying attention. That goes on for a while. And then eventually when I get to the punchline of my story, you'll recognize when it comes and you'll be able to give, you know, the proper appraisal like, oh, wow, you know, you're so lucky or whatever the appropriate um, response is. So there's a sort of set of rules in a way about how you – uh, act as a as a listener to to someone telling a, a story in, in everyday conversation, and they wanted to tap into the effect of that behaviour. So they had these two different conditions in the experiment. In one condition, they just they didn't do anything other than what I just described. They just recorded uh, the interaction, and they observed that listeners would do all the things I just described. Uh, and the speakers would tell their stories in a you know pretty fluent kind of way. In the second condition, uh, what they did is they gave the listener an instruction. They said, all right, uh, there's a button here under the table and you have to press this button every time the person who's telling this story 
uh, uses a word that starts with the letter T. Okay, so every time they say a word like the, you know, or there or then or tree or whatever, um, the listener would have to press this button. And, of course, the speaker, the person telling the story didn't know this. The result of this was really interesting. So what happened is it distracted the attention uh, of the person who was listening to the story. So I'm no longer paying attention to the content of your story. I'm just thinking about how the words are spelled that you're saying. And I'm and I'm pressing this button, you know, uh, you you can't see this. Well, what it meant is that people produce this feedback signals, these aha uh-huh type signals, much less often. They didn't time them very well, and then in the end, when the sort of person came to the punchline, that they kind of missed it, right? So they didn't, you know, come in at that key moment and say wow or, or whatever the appropriate response was. Um, and then at the end of it, you know, Bavlis and her colleagues went and they they actually measured the fluency of these storytellers and they showed that in the, in the sort of normal condition, the storytellers were perfectly fluent. But in the other condition uh, with the distracted speaker, there were all of these ways in which the person was you know, literally uh, worse at telling a story because their audience wasn't playing the part in sort of helping to regulate the flow and helping to increase the fluency and helping to sort of achieve the the goal of reaching of reaching that target. So their conclusion, and it's one that I explore in, in the book, you know, was that really uh, talking, using language, is not an individual uh, task. It's a task that is done by two or more people in a, in a kind of a collaborative, cooperative uh, this show just paid for itself, Robbo. That's gold. That is the, that's, that's the bit that I wanted to hear. You're making me hungry. I'm thinking linguini. <laughs> I really like that expression, <laughs> linguistic gold. I think I'll put it up on, on the board of my office. You can have that. You can have that. You will let you have that. That's all right. I, I want to, you've said, a good interviewer has to suppress a strong tendency to jump into the space or silence. And it's been said that's a skill we should develop to have deep, meaningful com- communication with others. And when I hear great interviewers like Cal Fussman or Parkinson, these guys who are the greats who've had the Muhammad Ali's and Gorbachev's and Clinton's and you name it, they've had the big guys, the big end of town, and they do suppress that tendency to jump in. And I must say, as an interviewer, it's something I'm very, very conscious of because I want you to tell the story. I want you to feel you have the space to expand and dig in and find the gold. Then the other part I'm interested in is particularly as a, in a conversation sense, which I think is a two-way street, and I totally agree with the gold you just dropped. Do we, should we, and is it something we need to be conscious of as leaders, as parents, as friends, to resist the, the temptation to jump in? Should we start to actually consciously think about giving that little gap for great communication? Is that something we should bring into not just an interview situation but also our communication? What's your view on that? Well, my view is that, you know, you need to understand the function of the decision that you make to either speak now or wait. There's no rule that says, you know, you should wait more often. 
but really it's you should understand what you're doing by waiting. So the important thing about the interview context is, as I said earlier, you know, it's really about getting the interviewee to say stuff because people want to hear what the interviewee has to say. And that in a way is the goal. So waiting means that, yeah, they get, that's, that's a way of sort of, you know, by doing nothing is a way of prompting them to continue to talk. And it's a way, therefore, of fulfilling the function of that particular kind of conversation, uh, which we call an interview, right? So you've got to sort of understand what's the function of it. When you turn to conversational interaction, uh, there's some different aspects of the function of the conversation itself. So, you know, if, if we're just talking to each other at home, I might be just telling you something about what happened that day. I might be giving you a bit, bit of information, asking you some questions. But the big difference about everyday conversation and, and, and an interview is that it's the sense of there's a greater sort of symmetry to it, right? The big difference is that when I'm talking to someone in my house, one of my family members, I've got a relationship with that person. So I've got different rights and duties. I've got I've got just as much a duty to listen to them as I do to respond to them and tell them what I think, right? Whereas if I'm an interviewer and an interviewee, you know, most interviewers that I speak to, that's the only time I ever have a conversation with them. It's not like I have a relationship with them or they're particularly, you know, interested in, in you know, it's not an equal sort of relationship, if you know what I mean. And the function of these conversations we have at home really happen on two levels. So one level is just, you know, what we happen to be speaking about and I'm informing you of something. The other level is, you know, the, the social relationship. Am I showing you that I'm listening to you? Am I showing you what I think? Am I contributing my part? So uh, you, I wouldn't suggest telling people as a blanket rule uh, just, you know, wait longer before you respond because sometimes it's your turn to respond and you really should be the one to speak right now. Um, you know, and th that said, there might be something to be said for for waiting a bit more often than we do because it's good to listen. Uh, I think it's it's strategic to listen. It's better to hear what other people have to say before you rush in. But in terms of the function that we uh, serve by by sort of deciding to wait or to go ahead, you know, it's it's more about understanding what it means to do that and then applying that tool kind of in a way that's appropriate to, to whatever the goal of the interaction is. So it highlights, I think, the fact that, you know, there's there are differences in the purpose of the different interactions that we have using language. And also, uh, secondly, you know, there's the social relationship between the two people and, and, and those two things, you know, uh, show, you know, give rise to pretty radical variation in the kinds of things that we're doing when we're having conversations. So coming back to what we sort of said earlier, you know, you, you, it's hard to really generalize about these things. What I would want to advocate would be understanding the mechanisms and the functions of all of the tools that we use in interaction and then applying them in a way that's that's, uh, that's flexible and that, that's appropriate to the situation. I think you're going to find that the uh, situation of this interview is different for you, Nick, because uh, this is this is an interview now that has started a social relationship with us and uh, <laughs> you, can, you can expect us to be around your place with a carton of Dos Equis and some, some steaks for a barbecue. And some linguine. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some falafel. <laughs> <laughs> Now, this is this is terrific. The word, huh? Apparently, 
is a universal word. And in your research, you found and sampled 31 languages from diverse language families around the world. And you found that all of them have a word with near identical sound and function as the word, huh? Yet, in a lot of households, we would scold our kids for going, huh? Where, where do we sit with this? Like, what? Just tell me the story behind the word, huh? Where it sits, how we may or may not be using it in the right way. Well, the story is one that has kind of arisen out of just doing basic research into human language as scientists of language. You know, I started out when we were talking, uh, you know, explaining what it is that I do. And I said that we look at human language as a general phenomenon. We try to understand what human language is like. And so the fundamental thing that we do, just, just in the same way that, you know, Charles Darwin couldn't have come up with his theories, um, you know, about evolution without first having many, many rich descriptions of, of the forms of life, you know, on the earth. Uh, linguists can't understand the nature of language without having descriptions, rich descriptions of what language is actually like. So that's what we've been concerned with doing. And in, in the history of linguistics, it's been skewed by uh, an emphasis on written language. So people talk about language and they'll pick up a, a novel or they'll pick up a you know, various books and they'll say, you know, here's, uh, here's what a sentence looks like. In our approach to language, we're much more interested in, you know, the m- much more dominant uses of language in everyday life and that is that social interaction. So we start out with that question which says, well, what's language like in the wild? And how does it differ across the thousands of languages that exist in the world? And uh, as a team, what I've done with uh, many of my research colleagues is to go out into the field. You know, I work in Southeast Asia. I have colleagues who work in you know countries like Ecuador and, and Ghana and Italy and Papua New Guinea and all of these countries. And we've gone out with a similar approach and said, okay, well, let's just collect recordings of everyday interaction between people who know each other well and let's try to understand, you know, how that is structured. Let's not start from, um, you know, a view that there are grammatical rules and we're all supposed to follow them. Let's just find out what people actually do. And it's when you approach language from that kind of, you know, observational uh viewpoint that you start to see some of the things that escape notice if you focus on language from, uh, you know, the point of view of written language. And a classic example of that would be something like the word, huh? Now, this little word is something that you will hear uh, or similar sort of variants of it or functional equivalents of it. You hear, uh, you know, once every approximately minute and a half. Somebody will miss what someone said. Somebody will either not recognize a name or not understand a word or, you know, there was some noise that interfered with their hearing and they'll say, huh, what? Or something like that. This is the kind of word, uh, going back to these other words that we've been talking about today, these traffic signals that we rely on incredibly heavily in, in social interaction. And, and it was it was doing this kind of observational work that led us to that that. Um, realization that wow, these languages spoken in places as far apart as Ghana and New Guinea and 
and Laos and Ecuador. They're, they're radically different in all these ways. But look at this. The people who are using them are, are having this same scenario where one person misses what the other said and they say something that sounds roughly like, huh? And then the first person repeats what they said. Um, it's very reliable. Uh, we did a lot of measures of the sort of the way that this word sounds and, and the functions that this word serves. And what we found is that it's there's a remarkable similarity across the languages in its sound and its function, and that's something that's almost unheard of in human language. You know, what, what, what we all know about human languages is that you can't understand most of them, right? You have your own language, maybe you learn another couple of languages, but most languages you, you just don't understand because the words are all different. Well, there's these functional words like ha, huh, which are surprisingly similar, and, and, and that's what it was that we... Uh, we noticed in our own data and we, we pulled out data from another couple of dozen languages where people had actually written about this and that's where we got the, the data from the 31 languages. Now, that study we published in, in 2013 and, you know, there's been a lot of attention to it. We haven't had any serious, um, you know, description of a language where people don't do this. With the modern day digital means of communicating, we I find that people now are sending me more emojis. Oh yeah. As a and and I love that I love the word you said you're a scientist of language. I would use that as my business card. That's really cool. That's super cool. That's gold. Is emoji as a linguist, as a scientist of language, is the emoji creating a new language or a new meaning? Like what what's where does that fit in your science? Well, an emoji is uh, not going to create a new language, but, uh, you know, what it's going to do is sort of enhance what we think of as language. It points to a really interesting problem with the the very concept of language. An emoji is not really different from certain kinds of hand gestures. So if you think about things like the middle finger gesture or the OK sign, right, Uh, those kinds of gestures... We wouldn't say that that's like another language. Someone uses, you know, people sometimes use that, that terminology. They'll talk about body language and so on. But uh, to me, uh, you know, emojis and stuff um, are, are really just like those kinds of hand gestures. We don't tend to use them in isolation, but we can. We might, you know, just sort of give someone the middle finger randomly across the room or what have you. It's possible to do that. Bertie and I do that all the time. <laughs> Yeah, across the studio. Sure, whenever the context is appropriate, they can be used. Um, but essentially, they they uh, stand in for if if you use them in that way, they stand in for what we call interjections in language. So that's you know uh, words like uh, wow or oh, you know, or even huh, where they don't sort of enter into the grammar of a sentence. We don't really use them like slotting a word into a sentence. We just sort of attach them to our uh, to our sentences or we use them sort of standalone. So in a way, they kind of are little stand-ins for expressions or idioms or words or sometimes sentences, but they're not they're not offering an alternative to a language as such. What they're really doing is kind of uh, putting a little auxiliary set of signs and symbols that we're able to uh, used to enhance the the kinds of conversations that mm. we're having. I, I look, I could I could talk for hours about this stuff. I'm going to throw one last thing to you, Nick, and I guess it's more of a suggestion that you would leave with us and the people listening to the show. Maya Angelou, who was a 
poet and author and podcaster, radio announcer, and the first black lady to speak at a presidential inauguration was a lady who words were very, very important to her and she was very articulate and she thought lots about her language. And she said, and it's a quote that I found, it said, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. As a linguist, give me your suggestion as to what we should do in terms of the science of language to ensure that when we are with somebody, we leave them feeling like they are special. Wow. Well, leaving them feeling like they're special, that's that's a tall order. Um, but in a way, that should come naturally if they are special. So, you know, the, the, there's, a good, there's a good open question really as to whether you, you want to do that, um, whether you should be doing it if you don't feel that they are special and, and that sort of thing. Um, so once, you know, one view would be to say, well, don't, don't leave people feeling the way that you wouldn't want to leave them. Um, but what I would emphasize to really sort of address that question is to say that language is not just a way of encoding an idea or putting, you know, a concept into a little package or whatever. When we use language, we're using it together with people and we're collaborating with them. We're just as much doing something with our voice as we are requiring the other person to do something with their mind that takes the sounds that we're making and the visible signals that we're making and turn that into an idea but also a feeling. And one way in which uh, this can be understood, you know, in certain types of active training, it's said that you don't say things to people, you do things to people. And I think that's a good way to think about what it is that we do when we use words. We're not just saying something to someone. We're also always doing something to that person by saying it. And I think that's sort of where the idea is, that's where the idea lies that we are making somebody feel a certain way and it's that that they're going to kind of take away. Another way of thinking about it from the speaker's point of view is to say, don't forget when you say something to someone, you're doing something to that person. What a beautiful way to wrap it up. Nice. Uh, We have been digging into your latest book, How We Talk, Nick. Where where would you like people to go to find more about you, uh, find that book and more about your work? Well, I have a website, nickenfield.org, and people can find more of my scholarly work there and also um, the book, How We Talk, that can be bought at good bookstores. I I live in Sydney, so you could go to Ariel Bookstore or Glebe Books, but uh, it's published by Basic Books and can be ordered uh, online in the usual in the usual manner, and I'd be uh, you know I'm always open to people's feedback, so um, people shouldn't hesitate to get in touch with me. Because you've done lots of books, haven't you? Like you've got a whole stable, you've got a whole bookshelf full of stuff you've written. How many books have you done? Gosh, um, I have about I think it's like eighteen or nineteen books. Uh, <laughs> you know, in in academia, we you know there's a couple of different ways in which we produce books, and one is you know writing them 
uh, ourselves and another, and I've done nine of those types of books. Um, and then there's another sort of mode of book uh, production, which is editing books. And so that's where we bring together a group of uh, scholars to to write about a problem and, and someone will, will edit that. So I've done, um, you know, a dozen or so edited, edited books. So uh, yeah, I mean, I'm surrounded by a lot of productive, good people. So, you know, that always means there's interesting stuff coming out. There's a lesson in that alone, just to finish the show. And I like the term scholarly work. It's what we endeavour to do here in the studio each day, mate. Well, it's a bit we, of scholarly work. We do it, right? it every day, don't we? Surely. <laughs> I've got my... Scholarly what's that, work. What's those hats they wear? You know, the, the, the with you put the concrete on the top, you know? What are those hats? The concrete, the mortarboard. I the mortarboard. That's yeah. what I'm thinking of. There you go. <laughs> Gaz looks good in his. <laughs> yeah. Nick, uh, mate, thank you so much for spending time with us. This is, I mean, I don't know many shows that dig into this as a topic. I love the way you articulate your thoughts. You challenge us with your views on stuff. The book's great. And, uh, mate, it's a real real delight to be able to spend time with you. Thank you. Well, thanks very much. It's always fun to have a proper interview where people uh, have done some homework and have got really interesting things to ask. So thanks back at you guys. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Right. Ladies and gentlemen. Now. Um. Um. Yes, <laughs> you were listening. Well done. I was listening. That's right. <laughs> As someone who works with voice talent day in and day out and people who speak f- for a living, that was really, really interesting. Do you know, when I first had the thought we should do something, it was because you listen to a lot of podcasts who find a lane and they drill into that lane. But after a season or two seasons, they literally run out of topics. Whereas I think the beauty of this show for us, you and me, and also for our listeners, and I get this feedback a lot, is the eclectic nature of our guests. But who would have thought you could get a fascinating interview out of language, linguistics and conversation. Yeah, I know. And and increase your mojo at the same time. Absolutely. <laughs> he was cool. I've heard a lot of stuff on on Nick in doing my research for the show, but uh, I really enjoyed that. I think he was a really cool, cool guy. Absolutely. Might be a round two for him. I enjoyed that. That was well worth the, the hour of my time. The Mojo Radio Show. So before we wrap up with a bit of rock, Mm. uh, I believe you have something in your pocket. I've got one hand in my pocket, as Alanis Morissette said, but I'm not flicking a cigarette. The last six months or so of this show, we've had a bit of a focus on social media a little bit, and it's something that I've been pouring a lot of my time into for my business. And one of the tips that you gave me was a tool called Pocket, and I've been using it to sort of stash away little articles that I might want to share or things that I might want to base an article on LinkedIn around. But I've been struggling with using it a little bit, and it's um, going to go way back to episode 22. Do you remember um, that mate of mine, Ella James? She's a voiceover artist who now lives in LA, does some stand-up comedy and is also working as an actress. Do you, can you remember that far back? <laughs> love Ella. Isn't she great? She's the Hashtag love Ella forever. Has, absolutely. Hashtag I heart Ella. Do you remember this conversation we had around the app called Pocket? I use Pocket to capture web pages. Um, and then I have my pocket days where I go back to pocket and I sift through what I want to read, what I want to um, dump, what I want to keep and do something with. So it's a little bit of a filing cabinet for me, if you like. Oh, I like that pocket days. I like that. That's cool. Oh, you'd love, yeah, pocket's really cool. Have you used it? No, no, but I love that principle of actually saying today is the day to go back through 
I'll check out Pocket, yeah. but if I had if I had Pocket as a tool, today's my day to go back through it. That's just really cool because people generally put that stuff away; they never get to it. Yeah, that's but it. Having no, a day, yeah, that's cool. And you know, and because Pocket can be on all your devices, I can be at an audition and I can pull up my Pocket and I use that as my time to go through things and and start sorting through them. You know, I mean, doctor's appointments or you yeah. know when you're sitting on the train, that's your Pocket time. It's getpocket.com. Really cool. There's another sponsor for you. And <laughs> yeah. Okay, Robbo, put that down, mate. We'll, yeah, we'll, give, them a, we'll give them a call. That's it. We're there. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll do the ad for you. So since I've been on my social media binge with Voodoo Sound in the last six months or so, I've actually started using Pocket. But I was interested to hear, because you're a big aficionado of it, aren't you? You love Pocket, right? Yeah, I do what Ella does. I, I set up Pocket Days. And the nice thing about Pocket, so essentially what Pocket is, is it's, you find it at getpocket.com. Mm. It is an app and you can put it into your menu bar on your desktop or your laptop. When you find an article or a web page or a blog or something you want to read but you don't want to read it now, you just click it and stick it into Pocket. A little icon goes up saying saved to your Pocket. And then if you have a phone or an iPad or a laptop and you are travelling, even if you're offline, all you do is sync it before you travel and you can then read through all those articles at your leisure and you can tag them. You can store them or you can delete them. So what happens is uh, how I use it is quite often when I'm traveling, I always carry a book. I always carry a hundred podcasts and I carry pockets. So no matter where I am, no one ever keeps me waiting because I either have a pocket session where I pull out my pocket and I go through 10, 12, 14 stories and I read them all, either keep them and tag them or keep them and use them. Uh, or I pull out a book or a podcast or whatever. But Pocket is gold because in the morning or in the evening, different time zones, your inbox gets filled. You may not be in the headspace to read or take advantage of a story right then, but rather than lose it, all I do is stick it in Pocket. So now I've got it. Then before I go to work or go to travel, I just sync it up and all your stories are essentially in your Pocket. So it's called getpocket.com. Let me ask you this, though. Being a bloke, do you want to get caught with your hand in your pocket? (laughs) Red card. God of Rock, thank you for this chance to kick ass. We are your humble servants. Please give us the power to blow people's minds with our high-voltage rock. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Now let's get out there and melt some faces! The Mojo Radio Shows, Lessons in Rock. All right, so to take us out this week, one of your favourite guitarists, what have you found on Mr Knopfler? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago you were talking about George Louis, the guy who came up with I Want My MTV. Louis, Louis. Oh, oh boy. Hey, I say, way I go. Oh, mate, we're, in heads, we're in some people's heads at 8 o'clock on Monday morning. Do we really want to be singing? Um, Hello, James Rain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Big listener of the show. How are you? James. Rainsy. Rainsy. The Raininator. The <laughs> <laughs> oh, jacked up on too many coffees. This that's morning. right. It's all happening. But listen. Too much, I- fish, too much fish river roast. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, I'm talking about MTV. TV got me thinking about Dire Straits. I don't know why, that's just the way my brain works. But um, it, it made me think that we haven't really spoken about Mark Knopfler on this show, who's 
touted as one of the greatest guitarists definitely of his time and certainly in the top 15 or 20 greatest guitarists of all time. So I, I decided I'd do a little bit of research and I came up with some gold. Even though he's known as one of the greatest guitarists in the world, Mark actually didn't start playing guitar till he was about 15. Being a typical teenager, he was clearly getting frustrated with his progress as far as his teacher was concerned. And one day his teacher turned around to him and said, I think you're perfect, but I think you can improve. And Mark has credited that with a lot of the success for not only Dire Straits as a band and his songwriting in general, but he's also credited it to the success of a lot of other things in his life in terms of his family, his finances and all the rest of it. And I just thought that was a really great line. I think you're perfect, but I think you can improve. It's kind of when you hear that after, and folks, if you haven't been and heard last week's show with Logan Gelbrick from Deuce Gym, do yourself a massive favour in the words of Molly Meldrum. Go back and listen to it. Listen to it a second time because that was a show full of gold. And if you hear at the end of the show, Logan talks about his new book coming up called Turn Right, that Mark Knopfler thing, even if you're perfect, you're still going to come to a crossroads. So frustration is you turn the left and you take the easily accessible off-ramp, the road well-travelled, you make concessions, the logical way, the safe way, the easier way is all the things that turn to the left. But then if you put the indicator on and turn the big red bus to the right, even if you are perfect, it's then, well, what's next? Because that's the idealism. And I love that word that his gym was built on the premise of idealism. What's utopia? What's riskier? What's next? What's the next horizon? And I think that's interesting because when you watch a guy like Mark Knopfler, he is in flow. Like that's a guy, Eric Clapton, Slash, Jimi Hendrix, Mark Knopfler, all these guys are legendary guitarists. There's no question they're in flow and flow is turning right. So I think it's a great quote. I would go back and listen to Logan then think about even if you're perfect, you put the indicator on and turn right into the riskier area, the unknown area, the grey area, looking for the next thing. So um, I think, in fact, I think what the philosophy on the Mojo Radio Show would be you get to the crossroads, you put the indicator on right and you say to the guy driving, here, hold my beer, watch this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now you're stringing them together. <laughs> All right, well, uh, we need to go out with some dire straights. What is the track you've got racked up? Let's go with Sultans of Swing. It was their first big hit, but I bet if you ask Mark, he'd tell you that it wasn't perfect. All right. You get a shiver in the dark, it's raining in the park, Sound of the river, you're stopping your whole everything. A band is blowing Dixie, double fall time. You feel alright when you hear the music ring. Well, now you step inside. In other places oh, But the horns They blow in that sound Way on down south Way on down south London 
knows all the chords Then it's strictly rhythm He doesn't want to make that cry or sing If standing no guitar is all He can't afford When he gets up under the lights To play his thing And Harry doesn't mind If he doesn't make the scene He's got a daytime job He's doing alright He can play the honky-tonk like anything Saving it up Friday night With the Sultans With the Sultans
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.